Hello everyone, and sit back in your chair and enjoy the next ooh, 45 or 50 minutes because we have our excellent Doctoring Four student, Maggie Wong, who just matched into internal medicine today. It's match day. And so here I'm bringing you the last of the three clinical problem solving cases for Mountain Lion mini series clinical problem solving. So enjoy and have a great day. Okay, welcome to our second episode of our mini-series clinical problem solving. My name is Maggie and I am a fourth year medical student at UC Davis. Today we will be going through another exciting case from the New England Journal of Medicine and uh, with two special guests, Dr. Mitu Mola and Dr. Voltaire Sinagayan. So could you two please introduce yourselves and as well share a fun fact? Actually, I'm, I'm Dr. William Osler. No, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could be as, as astute as, as William he Osler. He's better than Osler. <laughs> um, I'm actually a hospitalist here at UC Davis. And uh, my name is Mitu Mola, and uh, I am also a hospitalist here at UC Davis. Fun fact, Ah, fun fact for me. Um, when I was in medical school living in LA, um, I had thoughts of living that Hollywood life. And one day, I was asked to be in a commercial, and um, I went uh, to a filming in Hollywood, uh, where they had, had my own parking space, and um, everything was prepped for me in terms of snacks and food and makeup and wardrobe, and um, I got a taste of what Hollywood could have been like. <laughs> well, very and then I decided to go to medicine. <laughs> Yeah, whenever we're recruiting, we use him as our model. <laughs> um, fun fact about me is that uh, I used to be a door-to-door -door salesman and uh, before I went to medical school. And I learned a lot about people, and I'd have to say that uh, those same uh, people skills, I use them today. What did you sell? Yeah. I sold children's books. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Children's books. How did you even get into that? Dr. Seuss? Yeah. No, I went to sales school. Oh, okay. some techniques. Uh, very interesting work. I had a lot of doors slammed in my face, though. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, we're, gla uh, we're glad to have both of you here today. Thank you for joining us. Um, so, shall we get started with the case? We shall. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of history first. Um, so, we have a 50-year-old woman from Texas who had nasal congestion, post-nasal drip, myalgias, cough, and hoarseness in the early winter. She attributes her symptoms to allergies, which she usually gets every winter for three to six weeks. All symptoms resolve within six weeks, except for the non-perfect cough, as well as shortness, uh, a hoarseness, sorry. Um, and so, for off the bat, we're giving a lot of, kind of a lot of information about the patient. And when formulating differentials, how I was taught was often, I find that it's most helpful to first identify what the chief complaint is first, especially in cases where the patient throws at you multiple symptoms at, at all at once. So what would you say is the chief complaint and what are some differentials that come to mind? I actually agree with that, Maggie. Dr. Mala, do you agree with that? I totally Obtaining totally a key, chief complaint first? Because <laughs> I think, um, at least for me, it, it keeps me focused. Again, like you said, when there's a lot of things going on or with the when the patient comes in with multiple things that, that, that is happening. A chief complaint often gets me, um, focuses me on what is actually could be potentially important. Yeah, I think that trying to uh, define the chief complaint and putting together a differential earlier 
you know, helps to also guide you with other questions that you ask, uh, especially red flags type symptoms, mm -hmm. symptoms that warrant further history and other workup. So do you want to take a stab at the chief complaint? Are you pimping me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to turn around and ask you. Oh, let me let me go. So <laughs> with this one, um, there's a lot of things going on, right? So um, if you look at it for, from face value, um, she has many things that are definitely related to some um, upper respiratory um, type symptoms, like congestion, postnatal drip, cough, and even hoarseness of the voice. Um, and so you could all definitely put those together and kind of look at it as more of a upper respiratory um, type symptoms. Or you could break it up and look at each one. Um, oftentimes for me, I'm more of a lumper and I like to uh, follow Occam's razor. Do you know what Occam's razor is, Dr. Mola? Um, vaguely. <laughs> so basically it's um, usually um, patients come in with multiple problems, but oftentimes those problems have a unifying diagnosis. So I usually try to follow that. And That's so great. with this chief complaint, I look at it as more of a upper respiratory type symptoms and trying to figure out from there uh, my differential. Um, what's interesting to note about this is too is, is the timing, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But um, the first thing that I really do notice is mainly these upper respiratory um, complaints. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that approach. Um, I think that the upper respiratory symptoms sound fairly benign. Uh, and uh, what I always do is try to look for red flags. Red flags that warrant further attention. So for example, someone with abdominal pain. Red flag, weight loss, all right? Um, and in, in this particular case, uh, what's concerning is the hoarseness, um, and that, that's how I would probably frame it. Um, and that would probably be part of my chief complaint. Uh, you know, this is a middle-aged, uh, maybe I shouldn't say that. Yeah, this is a, hold back there. <laughs> <laughs> this is a 50-year-old uh, lady um, who comes in with upper respiratory symptoms and hoarseness for the last couple of weeks. So, um, uh, and then uh, she also has a cough. So that's probably how it would frame a chief complaint. And then the time frame is also really important. Acute or chronic. And this has been going on for... Uh, six weeks. Six weeks. Yeah. And the reason why you're asking these questions is because you're starting to build your differential, correct? Exactly. And exactly. I think what you're trying to get at is acute versus subacute versus chronic. Great. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so yeah, um, you know, all of those things are really important. The hoarseness is concerning. Uh, the respiratory symptoms is concerning. Yeah, because I think with horse, hoarseness, um, especially with something like upper respiratory symptoms, you don't always get it, but when you do, it usually resolves. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting in this case is the non-productive cough and hoarseness continues even after the six weeks of therapy. Right. Yeah. To be honest with you, uh, respiratory symptoms, I would have probably just blown off. Mm -hmm. Again, you're an inpatient doc, so I think. <laughs> well, but the fact yes. That we're discussing this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But no, I agree. I think, from for the most part, they do self-resolve. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think it's interesting to this fact. Even the non-productive coughs, 
many times there's costs that linger, but the hoarseness that Dr. Molo is alluding to is, is, is a red flag that, that we both agree with could be concerning. All right. So those are some great thoughts. Should we hear a little bit more about her? Sure. Okay. So the patient describes her voice as weak, breathy, and easily fatigued. Also noted that she's been having difficulty speaking over background noises. She mentioned that her horse is constant throughout the day. It doesn't wax or wane or it's not intermittent. Uh, nothing alleviates the hoarseness and nothing um, aggravates it. Uh, but she has noticed that she's also been having some uh, choking while swallowing, which uh, the problem seems to be resolved with just eating slower. She denies having any sick contacts, though. On reviews of systems, she denies any weight changes, fevers, chills, or night sweats. You're smiling She there. also denies <laughs> uh, any ear discharge, hearing problems. <laughs> tinnitus, renorrhea, sneezing or sore throat. Uh, she has not had any hemoptysis, no shortness of breath, no chest pain, no abdominal pain, no nausea or vomiting, and she has not had any joint pain as well. And then on the patient history, um, she mentions that she was noticed to have a benign mass in her left breast about two years ago. Also has been told that she has mitral valve prolapse. Um, also has had osteoarthritis in the cervical spine, specifically to the C5 region. She has not had any surgeries in the past. And then the only medications she's taking are supplements, so DHEA, calcium, and vitamin D. And then family history is significant for pancreatic cancer, melanoma, colon cancer. And then social history, she consumes two alcoholic drinks per day for years. Uh, but denies smoking any cigarettes. And then she does have a travel history um, that we got from her. Um, so within the past three years, she says that she's been vacationing in the British Virgin Islands. Uh, she's also traveled to nearly every state in the United States as part of her marketing job. So before we move on, I just want to check in if anyone have any thoughts. I see some smiling. And so what information and the history that we have given so far sticks out? Yeah, so she had trouble swallowing food. Um, you know, uh, she had dysphagia. And when I think about dysphagia, I think of, uh, is it oropharyngeal or is it esophageal? Mm -hmm. uh, esophageal takes me down one route. Um, you know, uh, thinking about things like um, dysmotility type syndromes. Um, so for example, um, Crest syndrome, uh, that can be, uh, that can manifest as a dysmotility. And then oropharyngeal, food bolus from the mouth uh, into the esophagus. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that can cause that. Um, but what's interesting about this too is not only is she having swallow, swallowing problems, but she has also has a voice problem. So it makes you think, could there be multiple other things involved other than just the swallowing? Yeah, yeah, with the hoarseness, you know, an obvious thing that sort of comes to mind is thyroid disease, mm -hmm. hypothyroidism. Yeah, so I'd really want to take a look at her neck and see how big a goiter, if she does have a goiter, how much, how big that, that actually is. Yeah, yeah. Now put that together with um, the pulmonary symptoms, uh, the non-productive cough. Um, so, you know, is it the hoarseness, is it something localized? Uh, thyroid, parathyroid, uh, polyp, um, you know, I was talking about oropharyngeal dysphagia a mm -hmm. lot of times, 
uh, neurologic things can cause that. So uh, certain neurologic uh, diseases like ALS, for example, where they get a bulbar uh, type uh, symptomatology. Actually, there's even a uh, uh, Guillain-Barre variant, Miller-Fisher. Mm. Oh, wow. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if it necessarily affects your swallowing, but I know that from a neurological standpoint, it could be a possibility. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so that's one possibility. And then we have, uh, with the pulmonary symptoms, diseases of the chest. Um, and as we put to a differential together, uh, I always think in terms of the big three things. Um, is it infection? Uh, is it cancer? Or is it the body attacking itself? Mm -hmm. Autoimmune, collagen vascular disease, those kind of things. Um, and what really uh, strikes me uh, from what we've seen is the family history. Mm -hmm. She's got a tremendous uh, family history of cancer. So that's obviously going to be a problem. And I think also what you're alluding to is seems like it, you're trying to figure out a single diagnosis that encompasses all her symptoms. This is your Occam's which razor. Which is Occam's razor, right. <laughs> uh, but you're also getting at, um, I think, where you're thinking about the big three of autoimmune infection and cancer, um, Hickam's dictum, where it's still a possibility that multiple things can be happening at the same time. Um, so that's still a possibility, especially if the picture or the pattern that we're trying to go look at doesn't necessarily fit um, into a certain um, diagnosis. But, um, no, I like that approach, Dr. Mola. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with everything that's said thus far. Um, I was also looking at the travel history, and I was thinking maybe this could increase the a likelihood of maybe some sort of infectious cause yes. um, leading to her symptoms, such as TB or even fungal infections. I would agree. Yeah. And um, um, if you look at it as from uh, two separate things going on, um, yes, the travel history can definitely um, present itself in terms of um, a possible infection. Mm -hmm. um, and trying to explain then the hoarseness and the, and the cough, you could definitely try to explain the cough with that. Mm -hmm. um, and then her earlier symptoms of myalgias um, and going down the infection route. Um, I think it'll be a little bit harder if you're trying to use a unifying diagnosis to explain the hoarseness or the, or, uh, or the swallowing problems. Mm -hmm. um, but I definitely, um, I think what I've always said, if there's a travel history, there's always something there that you have to try to uncover. All yeah. right. And you know, you could even, uh, you know, she's been to every part of the country. Yeah. <laughs> but um, depending on uh, geography, uh, that could lead you down some. Uh, yeah, if she lives here in California, it could definitely be coxie. Yeah, and I have a, you know, a few favorite um, uh, associations that I use. So, Being from West Virginia? So, <laughs> that area. Um, Ohio River Valley? <laughs> yeah. They, so um, middle-aged men having a blast in Chicago. Oh, uh, yeah. You remember blastomycosis yeah. that has a predilection uh, for skin. Um, and then Mississippi, Ohio River Valley. Uh, what's that? I'll leave it up to you. <laughs> Histo. Now, histoplasmosis uh, can go to mucosa, so mm -hmm. uh, it's well-known, and this is sort of one of those board pimp type mm -hmm. things, uh, cause, causing ulcers in the mouth, uh, splenomegaly, um, coxie, um, predilection Southwest. for certain ethnicities, 
Filipino <laughs> being one of them. Yeah, and I'm not certain why. I don't think anybody knows, but the, the ratio is just out of this world, mm -hmm. like oh. nine to one. And it's not necessarily pulmonary. It's more disseminated coxie. Yeah. yeah. Um, can give you erythema nodosum, so some things to uh, look out for. Uh, I would definitely want to see her chest x-ray. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay. You know, so coxie, histi, histo, uh, blasto, those are all the types of yeah, I, I guess what's also interesting is, um, maybe interesting is, if we get a um, HIV history in her, because then you could also, going back to my Occam's razor, fit everything into an HIV diagnosis just because, mm -hmm. um, with her being, if she has this travel history, she could potentially have some type of infection that could lead to a lymphoma of some sorts. Yeah, no, and HIV patients, they're more likely to, to develop like disseminated histone. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, so let's see, did infection, uh, autoimmune, sarcoidosis, mm -hmm. uh, think of that, um, and then cancer. Um, if you have a mass that causes entrapment uh, of the nerve, uh, in the upper lobe, uh, laryngeal nerve, uh, or infection, uh, lung cancer. Yeah. Uh, I think that we have to consider that, although she doesn't have a real strong smoking history, but she has a significant family history of cancer. Mm -hmm. um, so those are a couple of things. All right, so uh, we'll move on to the physical exam. Uh, so her vitals was actually unremarkable. Temperature was 36.4 uh, or Celsius, which is equivalent to 97.5 Fahrenheit. Heart rate was 84 beats per minute. Blood pressure was 112 over 162. Uh, respiratory rate was 18. And then uh, I guess this is the biggest bang of the buck of her exam, which is the H-E-E-N-T exam. But it actually was actually fairly unremarkable as well. Her voice no was quieter, just huh? breathy and weak. Um, otherwise, normal exam, no lymph adenopathy, no thyromegaly, no neck tenderness or mass was appreciated, and her rest of the exam was unremarkable. And Did so, we actually go behind her, palpate, <laughs> and have her swallow? So we're assuming they did all the correct <laughs> techniques. I know Dr. Um, <laughs> Mola would definitely do that. <laughs> um, so based on the information we have thus far, which categories move up on the differential? And what are we most concerned about? Or is it still no change to kind of what we're thinking? I know um, oftentimes when we're on the wards, um, I feel like students and residents often say, oh, the physical exam's unremarkable. Um, and looking at that physical exam, I'm pretty sure nine times out of 10, a lot of people, even some of our colleagues, will probably say, physical exam, unremarkable. But I look at that physical exam, I'm saying, well, it's remarkable because it tells me that um, from an auscult auscultation standpoint, from a visual standpoint, that at least it leads me to something else or something else in my differential. It doesn't tell me she has a big bucoiter, she doesn't have any big respiratory um, sounds, um, and heart sounds are normal. She doesn't have any big skin findings, so that really helps me in terms of trying to figure out what's going on. So that, from that standpoint, I think it's a remarkable physical exam. Um, and it really helps me in terms of a different, in my um, search for a, for a diagnosis. That's why he gets paid the big money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, um, I'm not sure that uh, it really helps us in our differential uh, all that much. Um, I still would like to get 
a TSH <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to rule out thyroid disease. Um, neoplasm is still high on the differential. Um, you know, uh, I'm not sure that the exam uh, uh, rules it out uh, or the uh, or anything else that we've seen. And then infection, um, I think that the hoarseness really bothers me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what it is, it's, uh, but um, I would want to make sure that there's nothing uh, like a mass or something deeper mm -hmm. that you can't feel or appreciate on an exam. Uh, you know, there's no, nothing to suggest SVC syndrome, um, but um, I still, uh, I don't think that we can rule out uh, causes of entrapment of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. Uh, so could she have a, a big mass in her chest? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, uh, I, we still haven't ruled out autoimmune processes um, or collagen vascular disease, vasculitic syndromes. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I still think that uh, we've got more work to do. Mm -hmm. um, so all of those things are on the differential. Now, do I want to move something up, move something down? Uh, it doesn't look like she has fevers, constitutional symptoms, big mm -hmm. red flag that we always ask about. Mm -hmm. um, so we mentioned tuberculosis. Um, that, you know, that's probably less likely, but uh, still um, not completely off of our list. Um, doesn't seem like she has any HIV risk factors. We had mentioned that as well. Mm -hmm. So still my differential is broad. Yeah, um, definitely. I would probably put Neoplasm at the top, mm -hmm. maybe um, some type of cancer, whether that be a, uh, a cancer inside the throat or uh, down in the mediastinum, mm -hmm. or cancer in the chest cavity, or cancer in the uh, uh, you know throat, esophageal cancer. Um, still, also consider uh, certain types of infections. I don't think that we've ruled that out, and then collagen vascular disease, like um, you know processes uh, that uh, affect the lungs, uh, sarcoidosis, something very unlikely, but, uh, you know, can, good, can good affect for the lungs. Yeah. 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 Uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis. Um, mm. You know, you're, I know you're laughing at me, but <laughs> I love zebras, so yeah. that's where I go. Um, I happen to see a large population polyangiitis, uh, granulomatosis oh, polyangiitis okay. on the East Coast wow. at the NIH. Mm. These patients develop subglottic stenosis. Uh, they can develop uh, nodes in the lungs, mm -hmm. which, nodules, which can, uh, you know, so just thinking of things uh, within the chest cavity. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think those were all great thoughts. And so I was actually looking at an article that was um, about how to take a history from a patient that presents with hoarseness, and they actually made a very strong comment about how any patient with significant history of smoking or drinking alcoholic beverage, so for this patient, she did have a history of drinking two alcoholic beverages per day for many, many years, um, and if the patient also presents with unremitting and worsening hoarseness and throat pain, should be always be considered to have laryngeal cancer until it is proven otherwise, and should always be referred to an ENT specialist.
And so definitely having neoplasm high, highest on our differential is um, what I think most people would agree on. And so going forward, what kind of tests would you order? I think I would actually like some type of CT scan. <laughs> um, I would definitely go for a chest x-ray first just to look at that and then follow it with a chest uh, with a CT scan. I think I'd also like your basic labs just because if it really is a neoplasm, there would be some signs of some chronic disease like an anemia. Um, if we're worried about lymphoma, maybe looking at the differential with that to see if there's, um, or leukemia, um, to see if there's any abnormalities there. Um, so I definitely start probably with just your good old CBC um, and then with, with your chest x-ray and then going from there, seeing where that leads me. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. um, get some basic labs, get mm -hmm. a chest x-ray, make sure that there's no big goomba mm -hmm. uh, in the upper lobes. But I think even if there's no big goomba, I would still kind of go down the route of possibly getting more imaging than just a chest x-ray. Yeah, uh, and then I probably also would get ENT uh, mm -hmm. to scope the patient with the hoarseness. Mm -hmm. uh, and she did have a pretty significant alcohol history. Mm -hmm. All right, so these are the labs that the clinicians that saw her got. And so they did get a CBC with diff. Uh, white blood count was 6,400. Uh, with 64% neutrophils, 25% lymphocytes, 5% monocytes, 4% eosinophils, and 2% basophils. Hemoglobin was 13.1, which was with the normal limits. Platelets was 279K. And then serum electrolytes, BUN, creatinine, liver enzymes, bilirubin, and lactate dehydrogenase were all normal as well. And then interestingly, so what I was taught in medical school is usually tumor markers are not great for diagnosis. And But for whatever reason, the clinicians actually um, got tumor markers for this patient, specifically breast cancer, CA 27 to 29 and um, also for GI cancers, uh, so CEA or carcinoembryonic antigen, which all came back normal. So what are, what are their experiences with tumor markers? Like, would you have ordered these as well? No. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, I would, you know, if you're suspecting breast cancer, or, uh, you know, it's always good to ask uh, if, they've, if they're up to date on the breast pap pelvic and then do a breast exam. <laughs> I think right. definitely an exam would probably give you a better idea if they had cancer or not. The tumor markers, at least for me and what I've always been told, are, are better prognostic factors mm -hmm. and for um, markers of disease once they've been managed. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think I would have gone straight to the tumor markers either. Okay. I mean, we give them credit for thinking about them. Yes, exactly. Um, but they right. should, you know, probably rather do a rectal exam or what do they say? Tissue is the issue. Or colonoscopy. Or col yeah. yeah, so if, if you're definitely looking for neoplasm, it's definitely good to actually visualize it or mm -hmm. actually get some type of um, tissue. And you know, one thing that this does not settle is um, the HENT. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if we're thinking of the hoarseness, if she has some type of cancer. Um, and then the differential is sort of interesting. I mean, the white count's normal. Um, eosinophilia uh, is something that you can use if present for um, for uh, uh, eosinophilic for your differential es esophagitis. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, that's one of the things. Like uh, you know, I think seven percent uh, is the upper you know uh, limit. limit of normal. Yeah. And I like this little mnemonic. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Uh, NAACP. 
for ESN affiliate. Mm. Mm. Have you guys heard of that before? Surprise so, us, please. So Anne, uh, I'm all into mnemonics. Yeah, you. <laughs> I love mnemonics. They got me through medical school. Uh, so the N is for neoplasm. Okay, and certain types of neoplasms can cause eosinophilia. Uh, so certain types of leukemia, uh, as well as um, lymphoma. Uh, a for Addison's disease. A for allergies. A for asthma. Uh, C for collagen vascular disease. And then P, I believe that stands for uh, P. Can you remember? <laughs> Paget's disease? Paget's, oh, yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's a nice little mnemonic I like to use for eosinophilia, since you mentioned it there. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but for hers, hers, it's normal. normal. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, the hemoglobin is still within normal li limits, but again, this could still be early in her can if she does have a neoplasm, early right. in her cancer history. So let's move on to the imaging that they got. So ENT was consulted and they did perform a flexible laryngoscopy. And what that showed was a paralysis of the left vocal folds without any obvious lesions or masses. They also got a CT neck, abdomen, pelvis, which were normal. And then they got a CT chest, which they saw a 10 millimeter mass in the medial segment of the left upper lobe. No medial stinal or hilar adenopathy was noted. So things are getting a lot more interesting now. So how might this mass be related to the left vocal uh, cord paralysis that we saw on uh, laryngoscope? I think you alluded to earlier um, involvement in the recurrent laryngeal nerve. And so it's definitely in that area. Yeah, as it loops up, on, there's two, two sides. One as it loops up under the aorta, and one as it loops up uh, underneath the subclavian. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, this looks, you know, this mass could uh, definitely impinge upon the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and this definitely helps us out uh, in our differential, mm -hmm. uh, or does it? <laughs> yeah. Good so question. for our listeners, just a quick anatomy review, uh, re a recap um, on what Dr. Mola just said. So basically, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve is actually a branch of the left vagus nerve, and the reason why it's so susceptible to compression is because it loops under the aortic arch, and then it goes up to innervate the larynx um, through another branch called the inferior laryngeal nerve. And so anytime you have injury or compression to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, you get paralysis of the vocal cords, which would lead to hoarseness. And so in summary, we have a middle-aged woman presenting for persistent hoarseness and non-productive cough, now found to have left vocal cord paralysis and a left upper lung mass. So what do we think now? Is there anything you want to change or add to your differential? Well, just to, uh, you know, going back to the nodule, uh, the lung nodule, there's some very worrisome characteristics about it. Mm -hmm. uh, number one, uh, the size of it. So 10 millimeters, I believe that's on the... Uh, upper end of what could be mm -hmm. uh, uh, benign versus uh, malignant. Um, it has a speculated appearance mm -hmm. to it, if you look at it. Um, there are no calcifications in it, so calcifications almost always, um, you know, imply that it's uh, somewhat benign. Uh, so all of these things uh, make it uh, very worrisome. Uh, what could it be? We still don't know. The big three, still be anyone the big three, so, but. Infection, uh, neoplasm, um, and uh, the body attacking itself. Those big three things. 
Okay. All right, so we got a little bit more um, history for you guys. Um, and so she ended up being referred to another ENT specialist after she was discharged. Um, a diagnosis of pulmonary neoplasm with medial sinal lymph node and metastasis involvement of the left recurrent laryngeal nerve, as well as vocal cord paralysis was again suspected. She had an MRI of her breast that revealed no evidence of tumor. Um, they didn't get another colonoscopy because she had a colonoscopy done about five years earlier that had shown no abnormalities. And then she had a TB skin test that was negative. And then um, the ENT doctor prescribed her a two-week course of oral moxifloxacin for possible pulmonary infection um, and had her come back three weeks later for a follow-up. But unfortunately, the moxifloxacin therapy had no effects on the patient's symptoms. And so they did a repeat CT chest. And this is what they saw. Could one of you kind of describe what you guys see since the listeners can't see uh, the images? I see your eyes getting a little bit bigger there. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Sinegai would be more than happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, on repeat CT, you take a look at it, it's actually gotten bigger. And just within those three weeks, so which is fairly, I wouldn't say not fairly concerning, but very concerning. Um, and it's actually, um, spread with more um, lymphadenopathy, particularly in the mediastinal area. And so um, this is definitely worrisome for a neoplasm, and not just a regular neoplasm, but a fast-growing one. Yeah, there are, there's also a little bit of ground glass uh, uh, around it. So um, neoplasm, I think, is still uh, on your mm -hmm. differential, pretty high up there. Now, um, there's different kinds of lung cancers, uh, and I always uh, you know, you can tell what kind of lung cancer it is by the location. So I always think of SS central. Hmm. Small cell, squamous cell, or central. This is peripheral. This is sort of like in the upper lobe uh, near the periphery. Um, well, actually, it's sort of central, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Usually, yes, that's, that's true. I would agree with that. Large cell cancer, uh, that's the one that's peripheral that usually compresses the uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve. Um, you know, if she had like a paraneoplastic syndrome, um, hypercalcemia, that usually goes along with squamous cell cancer. Mm -hmm. Hyponatremia usually goes along with small cell cancer. Um, so, you know, this could be uh, neoplasm cancer. Uh, we don't know for sure. Uh, it could still be infection, um, tuberculosis, but I, did she have a TB test? She did. She did. That okay, that was negative. Um, histoplasmosis can be a, a TB mimic. Um, you know, she's been all over the, the country, mm -hmm. so we can't rule that out. And then, um, uh, you know, things that attack itself, could this be sarcoid? And I think that this is helpful in sort of ruling some of those kind of disease mm -hmm. processes out. So sarcoidosis uh, has a characteristic uh, pattern on chest X-ray as well as a characteristic pattern on CT scan. So chest x-ray, we actually stage it. Uh, so, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Dr. Sinegayan, but stage zero is nothing. Uh, stage one is hyalur adenopathy. Mm -hmm. uh, stage two is hyalur adenopathy with parenchymal infiltrates. Mm -hmm. Stage three, and this is what gets weird, the hyalur adenopathy goes away, goes away and then they just have parenchymal infiltrates and then stage four is fibrotic lung disease. Am I right? Correct. 
Um, but it also has a very characteristic on CT scan. And you can see masses uh, that usually follow the bronchovascular tree with sarcoidosis. So this does not, uh, you know, not really characteristic of that. And I think also the rapid growth is less likely the characteristic of sarcoidosis, am I correct? Because for her, the, the nodule actually increased from 10 millimeters to uh, 22 millimeters. Mm -hmm. That's about double in size over a span of three weeks. So that's very, very fast. And correct me if I'm wrong, then you start, be, you start to worry more about an aggressive lymphoma or even mm -hmm. a small cell lung cancer because those are pretty aggressive. So a fast-growing neoplasm, um, you know, could still be an infection, uh, infection that's not affected by moxie. Uh, so what could that be? Uh, tuberculosis, uh, I believe, actually does have some susceptibility uh, to um, quinolones. Uh, so haven't ruled out fungal. And then there's the auto, you know, the other thing, um, uh, granulomatosis with polyangiitis can present with a lung nodule. Uh, these patients also, uh, I, I like to remember ELKS, uh, the mnemonic ELKS. I know, I know. Going back to your mnemonics. E-L-K-S, uh, E-N-T, uh, lung, uh, kidney, sinuses. So remember, she had some kind of sinus issue uh, every winter. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, now she, you know, with kidney, uh, one thing that you could look for is a urinalysis to see if she had any kind of uh, hematuria. Um, and then, uh, but that's, I think that's still up there on the differential as well. Uh, so anyway, those are some thoughts. All right. So let's move forward. Um, and so the next, next slide, I just have a comparison for you guys to see how much it grew. Um, and then, um, so what's the next step? You guys already talked about the top differentials at this point, but what is the next step to take now? I think um, we definitely got imaging that has shown that it's gotten bigger. And so the next step would definitely getting tissue um, because we would definitely want to know what it is, um, particularly because within three weeks it's doubled in size. And um, from that standpoint, I think I'd rather want to know what this is so we can attack it if it's something that we can treat. All right. Do you agree, Dr. Mola? I agree. Okay. So. Rheumatoid the... arthritis, <laughs> by the way. Do you have <laughs> a mnemonic? Do you have a mnemonic? <laughs> that can cause laryngeal hoarseness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, would you put your money on anything at this point? Let me get some tissue, and then I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So they did ended up getting a biopsy of the lung mass, and this is the pathology report that they got. And so can someone uh, describe what you see? So that looks like a spherule. Um, With endospores. An endospore. So. Um, you know, histo uh, can cause spores. Uh, I don't think it, so, th you know, when I think of spores, I think of dimorphs, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, they're um, mold in the environment, uh, and then the body temperature turns them into uh, fungus. Um, so, 
when, it, when I see spherules like that, I think of things like blasto, histo, uh, coxie, okay. Um, you know, getting back to our original uh, thoughts. Um, you know, uh, that's pretty informative, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> issue is the issue. And so I think I, I definitely um, think the utility of getting a biopsy early is definitely helpful. Mm -hmm. Now what, uh, what fungal infection is her history and her presentation consistent with? Okay. Um, so uh, she's not the right sex for uh, blasto, which usually affects male, middle-aged men having a blast in Chicago. Uh, for histo, uh, you know, there's really not, uh, I don't see much, much else in line with their history uh, that would go along with histo. Coxie can give you a valley fever type mm -hmm. uh, syndrome. Um, no erythema, no dosum, which uh, Coxie is famous for. Coxie can do a lot of different things. Um, so, this is where we go back to the drawing board. <laughs> you can actually look up what uh, spherules and endospores <laughs> mean. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, so just for our listeners, the pathology report uh, showed that there was a presence of spherules containing endospores. There was no evidence of cancer and no evidence of sarcoidosis. So definitely cancer is out of the picture, sarcoidosis is out of the picture, and we're now thinking of a fungal infection. And so... Um, wait, wait, don't, don't tell me. <laughs> do you guys, guys want to guess on a possible diagnosis before we move on? So just in summary, um, she's a middle-aged woman. She's from Texas. Um, she's had a Texas. lot of flu-like symptoms, and then later on she ended up having persistent hoarseness mm. and non-protect cough for the past six weeks did not resolve with antibiotics, and then they saw on um, both the scope, they saw the left vocal cords, there was, uh, there was paralysis. Um, and then they also saw this mass that has enlarged significantly, doubled in size over the uh, course of three weeks. Thanks so much for summarizing that. Yeah. <laughs> Coxie, aspergillosis. Now is that how aspergillosis No, it doesn't can get um, invasive disease versus mm -hmm. non-invasive disease. So aspergillosis can cause ABPA, mm -hmm. acute bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. She does have allergies. Or yeah, that's more of an allergic type syndrome. And asthma. The buzzwords for ABPA is thick cords. Mm -hmm. They cough up thick cords. And they have high IgE level, mm -hmm. um, eosinophilia. Um, the other thing that you can get is an aspergilloma. Uh, which causes what we call the crescent sign. Looks like a big crescent on the chest X-ray. Um, and then there's invasive aspergillosis, uh, which I don't think that this uh, sort of seems consistent with that. Um, I would probably put my money on coxie, mm -hmm. coccidiomycosis. Um, you know, coxie can uh, affect um, just about any mm -hmm. uh, organ system. We see a lot of patients with meningitis. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly enough, it's uh, uh, thought to be increasing in prevalence due to global warming uh, 
crisis that we're mm -hmm. that we are currently in. <laughs> yeah, and I think here at Davis we actually have the antibody testing we policy, do. Yeah. and not yeah. all medical centers have that. So. She's from Texas, uh, although she has been all over the country. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now for the final revealing. So yes, she did ended up having coxie. I can't say this word, can someone say this word? Coxiomycosis. <laughs> yes. So also known as San Joaquin fever or valley fever, it's endemic to the southwestern areas of the United States. And so they actually went back, talked to the patient again, and um, they think that she might have picked up this infection um, due to her travels for work. And what the patient told them now was that she was actually traveling to Arizona several times over the past five years with her most recent trip four weeks before the onset of her symptoms. And then I think Coxie can also be found in Texas as well. Um, and so she was treated with 400 milligrams of fluconazole daily. Um, they did a CT 10 months later uh, for follow-up and that showed that the nodule had significantly sh uh, shrunken down. And then the antifungal uh, therapy also led to resolution of her, of her vocal cord paralysis. And so just uh, some teaching points are about Coxie. Well, I think what's so interesting about this case is also um, is that infection can also mimic neoplasm. Right. And so um, we're so used to always thinking about cancer and thinking about infection as being febrile or having high white counts. But I think what's interesting and, and to take away from this case is also that infections can also mimic neoplasm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important point mm -hmm. that Dr. Sinekai makes. Um, I've had patients that have been put on uh, comfort care. Uh, I, I think I've told this story before like in the ICU um, that uh, on post-mortem were found to have TB. Oh, wow. Um, or there's that conversation of, yes, this is definitely cancer, and then they go on to some type of treatment and it goes away or we get a biopsy like this one and um, we're proven that it's not neoplasm. Okay, yeah, I think that's definitely a great learning point and to keep in mind. And so uh, just a little bit about Cox, like Dr. Molo was saying, it's a dimorphic fungi, which means it's a mold in cold temperature and then yeast in uh, hotter temperatures. Um, we mentioned about how global warming has increased the prevalence of coxie infections, and that's because it's usually associated with dust exposure. Um, and we actually see it more common after following earthquakes because the dust comes up and because this infection is transmitted through uh, spore inhalation. And most people are actually asymptomatic. I was surprised to find that the percentage is actually about 60%. Um, others will have symptoms appear one to three weeks of the fungal spore inhalation, um, and those symptoms tend to resolve on their own uh, in weeks to months after um, they get infected. And these symptoms include fatigue, cough, fever, shortness of breath, headaches, night sweats, myalgias, uh, joint pain, and also a rash, like you guys mentioned earlier, of uh, the rash to the anterior aspect of the shins, also called erythema nodosum. And usually you treat uh, coxie infections with fluconazole, um, but if the infection is more severe or the CNS is involved, you would uh, use amphotericin B. And just uh, so just a quick learning point for those who are listening and are about to take step one or step two, spherules contain endospores, it's this buzzword Buster. for coxie infections. 
Um, so that's all we have for you guys today. Any thoughts before we close? Good job, Dr. Moloch. It was great yeah. working with Dr. Sinegai. <laughs> and and I think uh, every day, medicine does humble you. And so I think um, this is a good um, case to always keep your differentials broad and not get boxed in in terms of um, your differentials. Right. Yeah, those are very wise. And also, I'll leave you with one, uh, one, of, my, one, of, one of my professors used to say, um, you always learn the best from your patients. Mm -hmm. Agreed. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you again to you both for sharing your wisdom and clinical reasoning with us. It was fun chatting with you both. And to our listeners, if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to Mountain Lion. Next week, we will be having another mystery case with two master clinicians, so stay tuned.